Maybe a lot of people underestimate the importance of jury selection, venue, and really people looking at you saying, you know what, I want that person to take care of me and my family. I think that there are people that legitimately think that images of money and wealth equate with authority and, you know, prestige and respect. Hey, welcome. Rick Ficata here, January issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. If you're watching on the YouTube, you'll notice we have a new face here. That's Kevin Clower. I'll talk to, about Kevin in a second. Rachel, how are you today? Doing good. <laughs> you don't want to get too specific, do you? Yeah. No. Thanks well, for asking. You, yes, but your kids have been uh, sick for like a week now. You know, everybody's spreading yeah. these viruses between one another. You know, everybody's having a grand time over there. Um, in hey, actually, you're down the street from me now. I'm in I'm in Scottsdale this week as well. That's right. Thanks for the Kevin, invite. <laughs> Kevin has been a friend for. I think at least 15 years, at least. Uh, those of you who have taken the National Med Emergency Medicine Board Review, Kevin and I did that together for probably about mm, five, six, seven years, something like that. Was it longer than that, Kevin? It was a decade. Oh, it was that, it was that long. Okay, so we, the, a lot of you took that course, and a lot of you then uh, know of Kevin. Kevin was on the uh, ASAP Board of Directors, and um, while Kevin was taking was working with us on that project, and and as well as teaching with the uh, emergency medicine acute care courses that we put put on around the country, Kevin was always lugging around behind him this bag of books, and and this fellow had uh, two kids, jobs with major major responsibilities. Uh, was doing courses with us. No, oh, by the way, went to law school. And uh, Kevin graduated uh, about mm, six, seven years ago. Yes, it was 2011. Yes. Like it was yesterday. Time flies. <laughs> yes. I remember when you graduated over in uh, the west side of Los Angeles. And uh, yes, sir. so Kevin's done a lot of risk management uh, for not only the groups that he worked with before, before, like he used to work with, which is now called U.S. Acute Care Solutions. He was the um, uh, chief medical officer for the emergency medicine division of uh, Team Health. And during that time, he's been involved in looking at a lot of cases. Uh, he's got this le great legal background and is going to be joining uh, Rachel and uh, I as we do this endeavor each month. Uh, the the sad news, honestly, and, and for me, very sad, is that Greg has announced his retirement, and um, this is clearly an end of an era. This this guy is a is a giant in emergency medicine. He was one of the pioneers of it. Was president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. I've known him for probably close to thirty years, and. Um, I'm really sorry to see that he's not uh, going to be doing this with us, but is um, maybe, you know, call every once in a while and get him on here for a little, uh, little something or other, but uh, that's his choice now. And I, I feel I'm sad about it, but be that as it may, Greg, we're going to miss you, buddy. Uh, we're going to do uh the first article here. Uh, this is about a $75 million uh, judgment. Uh, this fellow uh, sued the hospital and all the doctors who took care of him 
for $200 million. That's pretty aggressive. And uh, for he suffered a stroke. And uh, the stroke was just not an ordinary stroke. The stroke resulted in what was called locked-in syndrome. So I had a review of what locked-in syndrome was. And um, apparently it's a stroke in the ponds, which it's, it's very rare. It's got to be right in the right spot which causes you to be totally paralyzed except for your eyes. Can you imagine being in a living hell? The only thing that you can move is your eyes. The only way you can communicate is your eyes. I don't even know that you can breathe on your own. Maybe you can, but you can't do anything else. So this is a horrible, horrible outcome. And that all of the other physicians in this case got out of it, but there were two left, an emergency physician and a radiologist. The emergency physician was... Um, it was asserted that the emergency physician, when he talked to the uh, the uh, neurologist, never, never basically mentioned and two important facts. One that the uh, patient this all came on when the patient was at a chiropractor. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> and uh, number two, and it's really hard to believe this, that he did acknowledge that he ordered a CT angiogram of this fellow's. Uh, uh, neck with it, which would and head, which would show the, the radiologist confirmed that this was a, a dissection of the uh, carotid artery uh, and moving up into the into the posterior arteries and causing this uh, this this stroke. But what the radiologist did not pick up on was the stroke that occurred. So there were two findings on on the image, and the, and one was one was missed. And as a result of this, uh, this suit was named. There, there was other one other part that was kind of discouraging. Uh, it was led to the emergency physicians um, modified the record or attempted to do so with regard to these two items that the patient did have a uh, this episode beginning while having chiropractic manipulation, and he did say something regarding the um, CT angiogram. But in any case. This involved a lot of money because ultimately he didn't get the two hundred million that he wanted. He only got seventy five million. Sixty percent was uh, uh, was felt to be the fault of the emergency physician. Forty for the radiologist. Twenty nine million for medical expenses. Forty five million for non economic damages. Now, Kevin, uh, does the the lawyers get the one third of the non economic damage part of this thing? You know, it depends on what they negotiated on the front end, and and it could be, you know, percentage contingent upon whatever they bring in. So, of course, you're going to want to make sure that um, that your client uh, gets the benefit of the true economic damage. Um, but I think they're going to do very well on both sides of that particular case economically. Yeah, twenty nine million for future medical care is uh, that, that's that's uh, ex extraordinary. Um, so anyway, that was a big case. And there's a number of things in here. This, you know, the idea that communication with regards to the consultants was a challenge in this. Um, and it was felt to be a an important part because this is all about time equal brain. And uh, the idea was that uh, and the and the defense basically said, you know, this was so bad that nothing was going to change this outcome. This is a horrible outcome. And and but you know it's very difficult to uh, not have a jury understand that time equals brain, uh, even even though it may or may not in certain cases. But 
that became an issue, delaying the diagnosis. Um, so I had a couple of points I thought were interesting reading through the kind of more detailed version of this. The So this patient came in, you know, already locked in essentially, and the emergency physician did order the CTA, but didn't say to the to the radiologist that he had this chiropractic manipulation. So the radiologist read it as a vertebral artery dissection, but didn't read that there was an associated stroke, just read the dissection. And then the emergency physician consulted the neurologist and the neurologist knew about the dissection, but didn't know about the stroke because the radiologist had missed the stroke. And so the neurologist felt because there's no stroke and have this profoundly altered guy that it must be meningitis. So that was his working diagnosis. So they admit this altered guy to the ICU with a meningitis diagnosis and treat what him as the such. Heck? Yeah. And so this patient goes up to the ICU and they treat him as meningitis. And ultimately they bring the case not against the neurologist because they said, well, it was consistent with meningitis because he's profoundly altered. And the workup showed no evidence of stroke and the emergency physician never communicated that there was this history consistent with the dissection, which could have led to stroke. And the, you know, emergency physician argued that I actually did tell him about this, but it wasn't written down anywhere. And then the emergency physician, there's, uh, you can tell that he went back and altered the records. And so went back and wrote it after the fact. And of course there's metadata that shows the timestamp that which he wrote this down was kind of after the patient had already moved up to the ICU. So after his consult and the quote from the lawyer in the case, when he was presenting this at trial says, you know, we're in this case folks for one reason, because this note by the emergency physician got changed. That's the note from the case. And so that's why they're really trying to pin this on the emergency physician and the the radiologist says, you know, he acknowledges, yes, I missed the stroke, but really my job is to, you know, identify the pathology, which is the dissection. And somebody else could have intuitively, you know, seen the dissection and associated that with the stroke. So I did my job, but obviously that argument didn't fly, but they didn't even bring the case against the neurologist because they said, you know, he didn't have the information. That's the emergency physician's fault. The emergency physician altered the records. And, you know, the neurologist dropped the ball too. So that's how it ended up being only those two people in the case. Wow, that's that's impressive. Uh, good background uh, on that as well. I didn't know all those details. And Nor do I. How do you find these rates? Will you use uh, LexisNexis or something? No, there's this cool thing um, called Google. Yeah. Oh, God, that'll never work. Yeah, there, there you this go. This is a flash in the pan. Yeah, you're right. Uh, this whole internet thing isn't going to go very far, Rick. You're exactly right. <laughs> if three you by two five will cards. tolerate it. I just had some thoughts, um, you know, that I'd like to share on this as well. Is would this be okay time to do it? You ready? Oh, absolutely. Okay, jump in. The first thing is seeing a bunch of cases that end up with an extensive life care plan like this has led me to believe in the last five years that we are all being penalized by providing better medical care in patients that would have died previously in sepsis in particular, but also in a case like this, because the, the outcomes are horrible, um, but they are surviving. And so um, bringing forward evidence, um, economic evidence of what a life care plan would be required for somebody who's relatively young going forward is is resulting in some uh, in some significant some significant um, uh, damages 
um, as, and ultimate judgments. So that's that's one point. The other piece here, you know, I was looking for the punitive damages in this case. I didn't see it. And Rachel, maybe you found that that was a component of this, but the, the the legal term that everyone needs to be thinking about when you alter a record, not adjusting, not modifying, you can do that in an appropriate way. But when you appear to be deceitful and try and alter the record, it's spoliation. And that is a credibility issue. Once you have been proven in front of a jury of laypersons to not be credible, you're done. And when you try and lie to people, or if it appears to be that way, they are going to, um, they're going to make sure that they send you a message. So this sounds to me, whether they labeled it as punitive damages or not, they were sending a message and punished this physician for spoliation and not letting them, not, not really reflecting the, the record that was that was accurate. And then the final piece here that I think is really important is, you know, when you're setting up a defense strategy and something that I, I've been happy to have had the chance to do for a ton of hospitals and systems and especially clinicians, is your is what type of defense strategy do you want to set up? You want a standard of care defense. If you don't have a good standard of care defense, you'll default to a causation defense. So the causation defense strategy here was, hey, this guy had such a bad situation, no matter what the negligence was, he wasn't going to get better. So therefore, even if we didn't meet the standard of care, he wasn't going to get better anyway. Well, yeah. it's hard in front of a jury of lay people to say, oh, despite the fact we didn't do a good job, it didn't matter. <laughs> You can't convince people very well with you know, a causation defense strategy. So that's what I wanted to add. And thank you for letting me do that. Well, you know, it was also uh, said by the defense uh, attorney uh, that the emergency physician did what a reasonable emergency room physician in those circumstances, managing a patient load going through the night would do. He met the standard of care, which brought up the phrase uh, managing a patient load. And we talked about this before, Rachel, and uh I have never heard of a case where the um, load that was in the emergency department was used in any way to exonerate a physician for a not, you know, ap uh, um, taking optimal care or at least meeting the standard of care. And yet that would seem to me that that would be um, a mitigating factor. Uh, Kevin, are you aware of any time when well, they I'm said, Listen, look at the logbook and the guy was over overwhelmed here? I I'm aware of it being raised, but honestly, um, who I've worked with before, we've always steered away from it because then it, it, it implicates and these these proceedings are discoverable as well, but it implicates that we're admitting we didn't take good care of a patient and it's because of the volumes. So you admit that you didn't do a good job with this patient. You also admit you might not have done a good job with another patient. And so, and so the hospital or whoever else you're working with is implicated as well. So it's a challenge. And where I think we're going to find out more about it, Rick, and I'm, ex I'm excited to test the theory, is this truly is a factor with, with COVID. And as the claims start to come in, it's clearly going to be, we didn't have the resources. We were in unusual times. You can't penalize us because we couldn't care for patients the way we wanted to. This will be the true test case for that theory, I think, Rick. But isn't there also uh, some um, some statutes that or regulations that were passed that made it uh, difficult to do um, a medical malpractice suit in the situation of COVID? You know, I know they were considering it. I don't know if anything ever was ultimately adopted or um, accepted by by any state, but hopefully there is some protection there. Rachel, Maybe I thought there was. Yeah, there weren't there. There wasn't Arizona. It's lapsed now, but I think that they're probably scattered across several states. 
what about this uh, over limit award? Um, does anybody really is it is the insurance company going to pay this amount? Um, no. When it, yes, I mean, so well, what are we going to do about that? You know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a tough thing because when you look at, at risk finance, um, you know, most most of us have our one million, three million, and it depends on how you're insured otherwise, and if. If whoever you work for, whether it be a, a, a clinician group, whether it be a hospital or hospital system, if they're not insured with additional layers of coverage and you only have your one million per case, well, you're clearly going to exhaust your limit pretty quickly here. So. Um, are they going to are they going to cover that for you? They don't have to, but um, but many will or some will. So. This is a pretty scary thing where a million dollars used to sound like a lot of coverage in the past. It really isn't with some of these excess limits judgments. Well, actually, I, I, actually, I've heard that one of the things that's been happening is even though there are fewer suits than there used to be, they're more costly than they used to be. And so some of the hospitals are pushing for uh, two million, six million, uh, and the groups are pushing. We, we've discussed that here. and. Um, and the reason that Greg said you don't really need to increase your uh, limits is because, at least that was at the time, that um, the insurance companies generally, uh, the lawyers are not going to go for limits over what you're covered for. They're not going to take your house, that kind of thing, because uh, that's what it was his view. And so that the more you insured yourself, for the more they were going to take, but they're still not going to go over over uh, your insurance limits. Well, just like many times, um, uh, Greg is a wise man and provided good advice. What I have seen with with additional coverage is it is a target. Now, where it ends up, it may still go mm -hmm. excess limits, but it's but it's you know, and they may choose to maybe not try to go above or to try and extract that money from you. But you never know where a jury's going to go with that. Um, but I will tell you, you you get a limit of two million, six million. Um, that's exactly um, where demands will be north of that. You go with one million, three million, the demands will be north of that. And I tell you, just without going into great detail, I'll, I'll tell you, I have a pretty good um, experience on one reinsurance policy that um, that it was expensive and it was a significant amount, and and it was um, not renewed, and it actually resulted in some venues of less. Um, less suits. So it definitely was a target. There's nothing to stop them from going after your personal assets, right? Pushing you to bankruptcy. That's true. Well, I guess uh, some of the phys uh, physicians are going to have um, corporations and the like, so that as long as they can't pierce the corporate veil, you should be relatively safe. Well, yeah, and that's where they should go with this, especially with this type of judgment. You're really just going after a couple of the um, of the clinicians here. It doesn't make sense. And I have a question for both of you. The thing that was amazing to me in this case was I'd like to know where they thought the negligence was. So you've got a stroke caused by a vertebral artery dissection. What's the treatment for that? So time is brain. This is not amenable to TPA. Um, that's what the, yeah. That's Go what the emergency. That's what the emergency physician argued is the damage had already been done. There was no intervention, and so you know, really, the the malpractice was with the chiropractor. That the people involved in this case, they they didn't cause the harm. Right. That and but 
that argument obviously didn't fly. Well, the, the proximate cause um, piece of this is amazing because if I have this right, both of you tell me if I if I got it somewhat <laughs> right. He had the cervical spinal manipulation and dropped right then and there. There was not like three weeks later, he started getting headaches and dizziness. Right. Nope, that's exactly right. In the chiropractor office. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, it said there too that he was being treated for two weeks worth of headaches. So that's the latest way we treat mm. headaches is you just take that head and, you know, rack it around there. Uh, you <laughs> so, know, it's... Go ahead, Rick. These are all, these are all, um, nobody won here, that's for sure. Uh, and it doesn't really say what happened to the other, uh, whether anybody, uh, uh, you know, paid money to settle kind of thing. Because obviously the chiropractor here has got to be viewed as the, the, we would all view that as the cause of the problem. And maybe we didn't, maybe at the worst, we didn't help the situation, but we didn't certainly cause the situation. Uh, that's um, why I think it came down to the falsification of the record. Yep. You think, so? you think that was the big thing? Oh yeah. Cause they made, yeah. that makes people angry and yeah. they, right. they want to hold you. Yeah. So I have a couple of points about that, uh, but I also want to answer your question, your question, Kevin. So you had asked about the breakdown of the award. I don't see anything specifically about punitive damages, but what they said in one of these write-ups is that it was allotted 29 million for medical expenses and then 46 million for other expenses. So that's about as close as I could get to answering it. And then regarding that, this was about the falsification of the record. I always want to throw a couple of little tidbits in about that just to scare people away from doing this. So, you know, altering the record, first of all, it's really easy to find now that everyone's on EHR is like, you will get caught if people look for that because there's just no way to, to cover that up. So it has more consequences than just kind of losing your credibility. So a couple of things, if you live in a state where they don't allow punitive damages in some of those states, it opens you up to punitive damages. So if you had that protection, sometimes altering the record can wipe that out. It could also lead to loss of licensure. If the board decides that you did this in a way to be deceptive, you can lose your medical license. Uh, and you could also lose malpractice coverage. So maybe you had that $2 million policy, $6 million policy. Again, if the, if the decision is that this was done in a way to look deceptive, maybe that malpractice coverage doesn't kick in at all. Uh, many policies have that in the fine print. So it's just one way to wipe out all of your, all of your coverage. And then finally, in some states, it reduces the evidentiary burden. So a lot of times you go into these malpractice cases and, you know, the burden is on the, the patient or their representative to prove that you did something wrong. But if you've altered the record and that can be proven, now you have to go in and prove that you didn't do anything wrong. That's a huge difference. And so just changing the record, that one decision, all of a sudden the onus is on you. It's, it's, it's a ton. That's a huge burden. So resist the urge. And then people always ask me when I'm talking about that, well, what if I want to add something? How do I do that without it making it look like I altered the record. And I guess what I would say, you know, cause you have that, like you have a patient say they, whatever patient came in with back pain and then they dissected in front of you and they have a bad outcome. And you're like, Oh my God, my note sucked. I really want to add something to it. You can, but what I would say is go in there, um, put a timestamp on it and say, this is an addendum. You know, I'm adding this just to, um, adding a note for additional clinical information um, with a timestamp. So it's very clear that you're not trying to do this to be um, deceptive later. It's just very clear that, you know, your purpose for doing that is. Although is not obviously necessary. all the addendums are self-serving. And, and, but and that's fine, but you're not, but 
That, that's fine because yeah, you need to you need to add clinical information just to to help mm-hmm. you know the downstream providers. It's fine to do that. You just have to do it in a way that's very clear. You're not trying to you know kind of work the system. Yeah. No, and- I think that's great. Imp- a great, great um, input and additional piece of information too. One thing I'll say in in response to that also is you're right. You can go in there and make and and, and create an addendum, but I think the words you choose are important. Some of those addendums, to Rick's point, sound self-serving. You say, "Listen, um, following stabilization of the patient." Um, I was able to obtain additional information and I'm providing it below and you can add more physical examination if you did it, et cetera. So maybe there's a way to reflect that you favored patient care over documentation. Now you're coming back to the record. Right. All right, guys, let's move on quickly to the, uh, the flashy surgeon and the Gucci (laughs) doctor. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. So, uh, this case is back from September 2022, uh, written by Alicia Gallegos. Basically, <laughs> this talks about a case where a surgeon, the the case details are a little bit sketchy, but uh, basically he inadvertently injured a patient, somehow caused a nerve injury to the patient while operating on him. And sounds like the patient actually had an okay outcome. They basically went back in. Uh, reattached the nerve, did something, fixed the nerve injury, had an okay outcome, but the patient still sued and said, you didn't quite fix it all the way. So sued the patient. Patient shows up with his wife. He's wearing his two thick gold chains, Got has a diamond pinky ring on, he's got a shirt unbuttoned, so his hair is pooped out. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> his, his wife is kind of dressed all blingy the same. Attorney basically pulls him aside and says, oh my gosh, can you take off all your stuff, button your shirt? This is not how we do it here. And they say, no, this, you know, this is how we do it. And, uh, you know, jury, they walk in and the jury is kind of aghast at them. And this is in rural New Jersey. So not, you know, not Jersey shore and, uh, the rural, the rural jurors, they're kind of looking like rural folks with their flannel jeans. And basically, even though this patient had a good outcome, the jurors awarded them over a million dollars for this good outcome. And the thought was, this was pretty obviously based on their appearance. They, they eventually settled, uh, they appealed and they settled for a lower amount, but the people, the court reporters thought this was uh, notable enough to write up and talk about how kind of self-sabotaging just this appearance was. You know, the, the uh, it's a kind of surprising because you would think that the attorneys would have seen these people come in for depositions and the like, then they would have similarly been blinged up and they would have thought, you know, to advise them that this is not a good idea to do in court. It's like, why would you show off your some of your assets in this way, this way when you're basically trying to claim that you have no money if, if you uh, get get sued? So don't don't don't, don't take my house, please. I know that was a rhetorical question, Rick, but I, t- I think I know why people do it. As I've seen it before, hey, listen, if I finally get my day in court and I know I didn't do anything wrong and I can just tell them about the care I delivered, then everything will be fine. Nothing else matters. But but maybe a lot of people underestimate the, the importance of jury selection, venue, um, and really people looking at you saying, you know what, I want that person to take care of me and my family, or I don't want that person to take care of me and my family. Mm-hmm. That's so much of it. It's right. and And if you ignore that just because you think you were right medically, that's only a certain percentage of your likelihood to prevail. 
I think that there are people that legitimately think that that images of money and wealth equate with authority and, you know, prestige and respect. Like, I think they actually believe this. So the idea that they would take that off, they would never, because to them, like they're, you know, conjuring up this idea that they should be respected. And maybe they weren't wearing that at the deposition because they don't need their lawyer to respect them. Like they thought this was going to help them. Well, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. And maybe you're right. Maybe it, it commands respect. And in their eyes, they thought they, I earned it, right? I earned it. This is who I am. My status is this, maybe. And it, it really speaks to the 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 follow-up article, Rick, that you sent me too. So the I don't know the source of it, but the Gucci doctor. So really in a similar vein, you know, very um very bright pastel suits, nothing wrong with that, but Gucci shoes, et cetera. And it just in the wrong venue, in the wrong place, sending the wrong message. Um, about what's important to you and who you are in front of a jury. Nothing wrong with wearing whatever you want to, but there's also nothing wrong with making sure that people get the right perception of you. And if you're there to defend your medical care, you're not there for a fashion show. Um, You want to be, I'm sorry, but you want to be a little bit more generic and really you've got to come across to them as credible medically and kind and caring and and compassionate. If you can do those things, they're going to give you a broad, broad berth on any claims of negligence against you. You know, it was noted there in that case that uh, the the jury foreman told the plaintiff's attorney that the jury didn't like the doctor with his Gucci shoes and and suits, even though they did uh, basically say that the the jury, the doctor wasn't guilty. But by the way, we didn't like the outfits. That's right. That's right. So right, I had five, to, go ahead. I had to do some googling to find these articles because they were they were buried into the interwebs here. But they did have some other um, pointers in the articles, which I thought were you know things I hadn't necessarily heard before. So worth repeating. Can I can I talk about what else was buried in these articles? The pointers, of course. Of All course. right. So the other things they said, kind of what you repeated. So they they basically said both flashy and dumpy clothes are probably not things you want to be wearing. They want you to be kind of middle of the road as a uh, somebody who has a, a suit against you as a defendant. Um, one of the things that they lawyers find that the defendant physicians tend to do that they wish they wouldn't is this habit of answering when they get asked a question, starting their answer with honestly, because it makes it seem like all the other things that they don't start the sentence with honestly is not honest. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, They wish that all physicians that are on the stand would delete their social media accounts because jurors tend to look them up. And so even innocent affiliations like a church group or soccer club or something, you know, might be seen as uppity or whatever and could get a jurors will can use against you basically want no web presence at all. Uh, to watch your whatever conversations you're having in elevators, hallways of courtroom, courtrooms, parking garages, because jurors, families, whatever, are around listening, kind of like the scandal, like the gossip, the drama. And so um, just know that you're kind of always being watched. So saying things like, oh, that one juror was sleeping or I'm annoyed with that witness, whatever, anything negative that comes out of your mouth or anything really, just you just don't do it. So I thought all of those things were kind of worth repeating. Absolutely. One other thing that always comes to mind when we talk about kind of the courtroom is theater is one of my favorite stories from my law school mentor who was a, uh, in one of these, you know, big five law firms in DC out of law school. And 
they taught their, you know, top recruits about kind of how to have a courtroom presence. And one of the things they did is, you know, they, they taught kind of people how to be litigators and he was never a litigator. Cause he was not, didn't have like the, well, I won't say that, but they, they the picked like, instinct. they picked like they're very handsome, tall, like, you know, their most, um, like John Grisham-esque actor types to be the people that they were going to put in front of the courtroom, but they had them all kind of stay in the training. And one of the things they legitimately did is they had them pack their pants. They had the males pack their pants to stand in the courtroom. Kevin doesn't believe me. I don't believe you. I'm just scared by it. (laughs) Yeah, because it conferred this like air of authority for jurors. And they, you know, they've done all these studies. These are people that are, you know, representing Motorola and AT&T, whatever these, you know, huge companies. So they, they have bazillion dollars that are going into all these cases. And they knew that like males that had packed pants were going to represent better in front of these jurors. We want, we want the alpha males. And they were like the big buff one. Yeah. A hundred percent. So like, Courtroom is 100% theater. So when they're talking about like, don't wear this crap, don't flash your shoes. Like it's not, it's not fake. This is, this is real. They know like what flies in the courtroom, you know, and it's different for the litigators as it is for the defendants for sure. So it's, yeah. Anyway, I just find that I found it so fascinating. I'm so glad you dug into this further. And those are great points. And and I will tell you, my my experience, maybe yours has been too, and I know Rick knows a lot about this also. I've never seen um, defense counsel or plaintiff's counsel that does not do have their staff do a social media investigation up the other side. So your stuff is being looked at and anything they can find to discredit you um, and make you less credible in front of a jury will and can and will be used against you. You don't, you don't want to let people know about the yeah. yacht club you belong to down in Newport Beach. You know, that's not a good thing. You're talking so. about me. That wasn't me and <laughs> still is not me. So. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to uh, Mike Weinstock and colleagues. Um, Mike, uh, we know Mike from uh, being on this program multiple, multiple times. Uh, uh, Kevin, you've written uh, for uh, Mike's book, which is called, the, it's a series called Bounce uh, Backs. Mm-hmm. Bounce Backs. The bounce back series of uh, and that's up to like four books now or three yes books? it's four i did um three with him i was fortunate to be involved then we're doing bounce backs medical and legal um we're starting a revision of that one within the next month wow medical clinics in north america is uh, where this article was written by mike and his colleagues and it was a about pediatric uh emergency medicine uh, malpractice issues and they this one in this article, they ranked the top five reasons for pediatric malpractice. And, you know, I always think that it's a good idea to know those things so that these are things that you are are going to be boned up on. You, you know the issues, you, you know how to handle the cases as, as best you can, that you don't fall into the traps. Well, the first one does, is not very helpful at all. It's called cardio the cardiac and cardiopulmonary arrest. Well, that's not going to help me any because that's the terminal event and everybody, you know, kind of thing. Uh, so, but the others I think I can learn from or we can learn from. Um, appendicitis it still is in the list of people's top cases against kids is uh, appendicitis. It's the um, AGE issue, acute gastroenteritis. 
Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, I guess you need to be uh, a little bit more willing to, now that we have ultrasound, to try to get an ultrasound uh, in cases that are at all suspective. That way you don't have to radiate the little kitty. Um, and, and if you're still not that uh, comfortable that when the, if the ultrasound is indeterminate, you need, then you can go onto a CAT scan. And there's certainly are, there are issues with radiation, but but now the radiologists can do a, a lot more to dial down. There's all of these movements about uh, image gently and Alara on the on, on the idea of uh, uh, as little as uh, possible radiation for these little kitties. Um, any thoughts, Rachel? Yeah, I've looked at a few appendicitis cases in kids, and I guess the theme that I've seen come out of those is maybe twofold. I think that when you have a fever with bowel symptoms, you have to be really careful about blowing that off. That seems risky, but really common in these cases. Like I have a couple that are fever, abdominal pain, and they're getting called constipation. That just seems. Yeah, that's a good case of constipation. Yeah, I'm trying to find a word other than the one I want to use. Um, anyway, not smart. And then uh, I also think that they're showing up at places that people don't have access to imaging or at least imaging they want. So non-pediatric centers or urgent cares. And so they're not blowing them off, but they're they don't have the the best tools to treat them. And so they're, they're not, you know, they're kind of wishing them well, instead of transferring them. And I understand that I work at a site where we don't have, you know, our ultrasonographers rarely see the appendix and we, you know, we don't treat kids frequently. And so our option is usually to transfer them. And that feels like, kind of like, we're not like we're losing the game, but I think we just have to get used to losing the game more often for, pediatric patients where appendicitis remains on the differential. And I have friends that work at urgent cares where they get kind of, uh, knocked down, you know, counted down, scored down for referring patients, uh, to the emergency department. But I think this is one where you just have to kind of decide that you're willing to get counted down instead of take that risk. Uh, good points. Disorders of the male genital organs. Well, what the heck are they talking about? They're talking about torsion. torsion. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Kevin, shouldn't you pay for torsion if you cannot subsequently get a woman pregnant? Aren't that the damages, supposedly? I mean, why would... I'm what, what are, to answer don't, that question don't you have, in, any, don't, in any shape or form, Rick. Don't you have to have damages? What are the damages, you know, here? If if uh, the other testicle is still working, just fine, thank you. And well, uh, I get you. So if, if you are, well... Where's there, the damages? There's self-image. Cosmetic. There are many, many other yeah. aspects. And you're supposed to have two. So... <laughs> Listen, so, listen, listen. We could we could fix that. You know, I we talked about this before. You know, you could put a chicken egg in there, and that guy would be the biggest, have the biggest testicle in the gym gymnasium shower compared to everybody else. If you put a chicken egg prosthesis in for the one that got uh, died, you know, it'll well, be better I, than before. I, I think that will be taken under serious consideration, <laughs> and I chicken. think it's a good idea for those who want to go that direction. You know, one thing I, I will share um, and. Rachel and Rick, keep me honest here, but my perspective has always been on, especially the very, very young, um, uh, especially infants, if you think this is going on, even an ultrasound doesn't get you anywhere. It's a urological consult. And most of those urologists are going to go explore. 
they're going to explore it because right. you cannot tell with diagnostics if it's an undescended test, testy, it's a tourist or, you know, there's just too many op- opportunity for, for pathology. Um, and, and you just need to go explore the scrotum and find out. So these are easy for us, right? Pick up the phone. I've got an eight month old, they're screaming and crying and it doesn't look right down there. They should say, call the OR team. Well, you also have to get the diaper off on, on all these kids too. Yes, you do. That's for sure. Uh, encephalopathy was number four. I, I don't know what they're talking about. You know, what kind of encephalopathy would be a cause of malpractice cases in kids? Yeah. Anybody? I wondered if this was lumping in, Rick, because something that I saw a pretty significant trend with, there were a small number of cases, but if you look at anybody with a VP shunt in, particularly pediatrics, the percentage oh, yeah. of those that come back with a problem and people didn't know what to do with it, and they ended up having some sort of complication, including encephalopathy or whatever, it was pretty significant. Um, so I just wonder if that led to any of this. Rachel, what do you think? I don't know. The lists I've seen have meningitis on them usually, but not encephalopathy. Well, that's coming next. That's oh. next. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I don't really know what this, or like any of these, you know, a, a cardiac arrest that didn't lead to death could lead to an encephalopathy. You know, right. I, I don't, I don't really know where this is. I would say the chicken before the egg thing, but that takes me right back to where Rick was with the chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I would prefer the egg over the chicken. (laughs) Okay, the fifth item was meningitis. And uh, meningitis has really become a bear because I remember in the beginning, and I thought I'd never be able to say that, but I remember in the beginning, spinal taps were done all the time. And so we kept, we were comfortable doing them. We were pretty good at doing them. And uh, there was meningitis frequently enough so that you re- got rewarded for doing them. Now, meningitis is much less common for a variety of reasons, um, mostly basically because moms could be um, screened for um, uh, any infections that they may have, beta strep and those kinds of things. And their immunity is such that uh, there's just much less likelihood of them having uh, meningitis than before. And so when you look at the numbers, you if, it, if you have a well-appearing child, which is the problem, we're not worried about sick-appearing children. It's the well-appearing child that we're concerned about. So you have a well-appearing child who has a, has a fever and it's uh, six months old or, or four months old, or, or worse yet, two months old. The idea is, do you do a lumbar puncture in a two-month-old who's well-appearing? And uh, that, that gets to be a, a question because, you know, the likelihood of you having a positive tap is like one in 150 uh, in cases like that. So it's kind of like that's where, where the issue is. And how many of the residents now really know how to do a lumbar puncture because they're done so infrequently now. So it's kind of like a, almost a catch-22 in some some sense. So fortunately, the American Academy of Pediatrics just came out with guidelines with regards to the care of the child in this, basically in the second month of life, which is kind of where the question about tap, no tap is kind of an issue. Um, although, Alistair says, what's the de- big deal about doing a tap? Well, you know, why are you so concerned about it? It's easy. It's harder to draw blood than to, to do a tap in these kids. And so all this chest beating about, you know, I'm concerned about doing a tap. 
in people like him who have done, you know, hundreds are probably no big deal, but that's probably not the case with regard to younger physicians who maybe have not even recertified once yet. Oh, shots <laughs> fired. Who would, who would that be? All right. That's all. I just said my piece. Some, all right, all right. some of the easiest ones that would ever be done. I mean, talk about a compliant patient and yeah. um, anatomy being good. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, please defend yourself, Rachel. All right. So here's where I think that the issue lies. I don't think it's the young infants. And I think taps are easy. Like you said, drying blood tends to be harder. Not that I do that. But uh <laughs> The cases that I've looked at aren't in the young infants, actually. It's it's in the older patients. And I think there's a lot of pressure to not do LPs in general, peds, adults, whatever, mm-hmm. because there's so much pressure to push patients through quickly. And then there's pressure to discharge them quickly. So not only do you have to line them up for the tap, then you have to wait for six hours for the results. It's just you know, we're in a time crunch. And so you're trying to decide at the outset, do I really have to do it? And if you squint at them this way or that, you can convince yourself you don't have to. I have three cases pulled up of pediatric meningitis where basically I think the physician talked themselves out of an LP inappropriately and then paid for it. I can tell you about them if that's interesting. What what are the ages of kids? Eight months, 12 months, 16 months. So still, you know, toddlers at best, more like infants. Yeah. We're not talking about four and five year old kids. We're talking about really kids where uh, history and, uh, and and physical are issues. Physical mm-hmm. the exam may be an issue. Or sorry, sorry. There's an eight month, sixteen month, twelve year old. So twelve year old. Yeah. yeah. Rachel, question. So yeah. how helpful in those cases, and and from your perspective, how helpful do you think it is to rely on um, immunization history? Well, at that age. Uh, not not much, right? I mean, I mean, I'm thinking if you're fully immunized, I mean, your your risk is so much lower. But those, the point I'm making is if if you if you really aren't, you find those people who, well, actually, I don't know. I don't think I completed the series. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. and then you've got then then maybe that is a target that you can go for. But you yeah, can, I mean, yeah, at that age, like Nyseria, you're yeah, oh, it's that good yeah. yeah, but yeah. otherwise, the rest of them, you're kind of yeah. So it all comes down to having a threshold that is safe for doing lumbar punctures in uh, kids who have a, you sniff out potentially being men, having meningitis. And, the stakes are just too high. And I think we're practicing an environment where there's so much pressure to move patients through quickly, which is different than 10, 20, 30 years ago when I was the patient, you know, I wasn't, but you know what I mean? I I'm, I'm speculating because I was very little at that time, but I do think it's different. You know, the, when you get into the numbers needed to tap, some of the studies basically will, will in these well-appearing children, numbers needed to tap, uh, go up as high as one in 500 will be positive. And certainly you can show that one in 250 will be positive. Or even, are you willing to do a tap if the positives are going to be one in one in 150? Well, so I'm not talking about those ones that, you know, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, where we have clear guidelines and protocols. That's fine. We can read those. We can read those and follow the algorithm. That's fine. And that's why I think we're not seeing the cases in those patients where it's very clear what we should do. So these are, can I just tell you the kind of brief history of these ones? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So eight month old brought to the emergency department with fever, fever and lethargy. That's the court reporter's word, lethargy. Was diagnosed with otitis media. Patient, the parents requested that they be hospitalized and have some type of testing because oh, they God. said they, they just don't look right. You know, we're really worried about them. Please keep them here. And the emergency physician said, no, they go home. We're not worried about them. They look fine. Two days later, brought them back in. They were all attended, diagnosed with meningitis, ended up with you know, permanent neurologic deficits, $26 million verdict. We don't have much other information to know like what their vitals were, all that, but we just know there was some discord between the, the parents' level of concern and the emergency physicians. There's not much information to go on, but but basically they were requesting, like, please don't just say it's an ear infection. We're really worried. Okay. The next one, this is the 16-month-old, had a seizure at daycare. Uh, she was febrile, but never returned to baseline. The emergency physician diagnosed her with tonsillitis and sent her out on an antibiotic patient parents, uh, brought her back the next day. Um, and she was diagnosed with meningitis and they basically said she should have had an LP that day because she never went back to being herself. And it was like a half million dollar verdict. Half a million. Yeah. That it? That it? We, I don't, we don't know what her deficits were, but yeah. And then, uh, the next one was the 12 year old. So this guy, 12 year old kid was treated with a bacterial sinusitis with 10 days of antibiotics. A couple of days later, he had recurrent fevers, rigors, headache, and a petechial rash all over his face. Parents brought him in and said, we think he has meningitis. He looks terrible. He has this rash. The emergency <laughs> physician said, I don't know what he has, but he does not have meningitis, just a viral illness. Um, they said, we really want an LP. We're worried he has meningitis. He said, nope, we're not going to do it. Um, the next oh day they brought God. him back. He was like mentally not acting right. So they did an LP um, and he herniated and they, they didn't, and he herniated and died in the ED and they settled for 360,000. Oh my goodness. A 12 year old. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So all of those, I think the kind of unifying feature is basically you know, one of them specifically, both two of them specifically said we should have had an LP. And the third one said we should have had more testing before we left. We requested it and you didn't do it. So I think it's all highlighting that, you know, they, they didn't do the LP on the first visit. And I understand why. I mean, I, I'm not saying I would have done the same thing, but I understand that there's this, this pressure to not do it. Well, it's unusual, I think, for parents to come in and say, I think my kid has meningitis. Uh, we'd like a tap. I don't know. I hear that all the time. Parents. Oh, you do. Well, you're going to miss a few of these cases then, my friend. (laughs) Well, you're, you're missing out on the era of WebMD where like, it's the first thing you type in, you just type in WebMD and then it's like meningitis. meningitis. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I get it. But you brought up a good point too, about the age differences too. And you start to get into the, you know, uh, maybe pathogens you're not always thinking about that are really, they fool us. Uh, Neisseria fools everyone when it's early. Um, and so I, I, that point is well taken and I appreciate it. You know, listening to you just, uh, you know, describe those cases, I think we have to encourage everyone to think about signal versus noise. There've got to be certain things when we hear them, nobody can talk us out of doing the right thing. I have chest pain that radiates into my back. Okay, well then that's gonna have to be a dissection rule out until proven otherwise, no matter what you say to me after that point. So I had a seizure, I'm still goofy and I have a fever. Well, you're getting an LP no matter what happens. I have this weird petechial rash. And I have, I mean, at some point, 
if you have a couple of things that line up that lead you that direction, you're just going to have to do it. And you make a really good point, too, that the pressure of throughput is important. But as clinicians, we have to make sure that we take we 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 take the shortcuts where we can, where the where the likelihood of harming a patient is minimal to zero and where we have to take extra time, we take it. And that's a tough thing to do. And it's a tough balance to learn. But these cases really illustrate that. And I'm not saying we do an LP every time, you know, and like, you know, to hell with the pressure of throughput. Anytime that an LP is on the table, you have to do it. But we know that we're missing meningitis cases. They're one of the top five risks. They've remained on that list, especially for pediatrics for years and years and years. So this is one of those that we probably have to pause and say, am I not doing it because I've ruled it out? Or am I not doing it because we're busy? And, you know, I think more often than not, it's because we're busy. But again, like if a kid has a headache and the mom is like, I want an LP because of meningitis. And you're like, no, I have no concerns. They have nothing infectious. They look great. No, I'm not saying you do it every time. But if you're like pushing this kind of sick kid through because you're busy, I think you have to pause on some of these and do it differently. Well, you got to have two dots to connect, right? Not just one. I have a headache. I just have neck pain. Give me a fever and a headache because maybe it's encephalitis. I mean, give me neck pain and a headache. Give me two things to react to where I'm not just wasting my time or the patient's time or exposing them to a procedure, but it makes sense to do it. Right. Recognizing that we are historically bad at this (laughs) and that we're feeling all the pressures to kind of miss these patients. You're so right. But there's also the skill uh, at suggesting to a parent or telling a parent that your Johnny doesn't need a CAT scan for this bump on his head. And the downside are, is this, uh, why don't we just observe him for a while? We have these criteria. He doesn't meet any of the criteria for a CAT scan. We don't want to radiate Johnny, even though all the moms come in and say, aren't you going to do a CAT scan kind of thing? Well, that's not quite the same as aren't you going to do a lumbar puncture? Because, you know, there's really... really no downside of doing a lumbar puncture except herniating the kid who has a meningitis who, you know. I think parents need, and patients need validation of their concerns. So maybe there's another approach and a happy medium. (laughs) So listen, I really, I I don't think there are obvious signs of meningitis right now, but that's a really important consideration. Here's what I would look for over the next eight to 10 or 12 hours. Any of these things happen, I want you to come right back. And you document that. There's nothing clinically there. There is there is concern from the parents. We discussed it. But the minute you tell them, no, I'm convinced, and then you're wrong. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, you know, even if the child did have sinusitis, the sinuses are real close to the brain kind of thing. And there's, yeah. there's all of this, these cases where it's, you know, these facial infections kind of just decide to move back. Well, and the talk, we could go down a rabbit hole on... What is true sinusitis? Oh, yeah, absolutely. True sinusitis, you know, frontal or ethmoid sinusitis that's real can be a potentially serious diagnosis. And we don't use that term that way. No, no, I've got you. Listen, let's talk about the uh, paramedics that are being accused of um, first degree murder. First degree? First degree murder? Right. Sure. So this one's been in the news quite a bit. And this is a case from Illinois where two paramedics basically were called to a house by law enforcement and were told there was a gentleman in there ended up being a 35-year-old, I think, 30-some-year-old. And the thought was this gentleman was 
uh, believed to be hallucinating, probably an alcohol withdrawal. And EMS guided one of the paramedics in. They ended up putting him on a gurney, face down, strapped him down, transported him to a hospital. And when he got there, shortly thereafter, he was declared dead. And ultimately, the cause of death was determined to be compressional and positional asphyxia because of the fact that he was transported face down and strapped to this gurney. And so the the state of Illinois levied criminal charges against both paramedics involved in his transport and specifically first degree murder charges, which in the state of Illinois, that is described as, let's see, person who kills an individual without lawful justification, if in performing the acts, they know that such acts create a strong probability of death or great bodily bodily harm to that individual. Well, this case might have been no or should have known. And that is such an unusual definition to most states. This is an intent crime with premeditation. That's the yeah, classic exactly. kind of definition. Exactly. And, and deliberation with the option of reconsidering. So just say, well, I mean, when you get into uh, knowingly or should have, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about second degree murder, um, you know, reckless homicide, those type of things. Wow, uh, this is crazy. Yeah, well, you know, this is this is akin to um, where the in the past people would put your arms behind your back and what is that? What was that position called where they were your ankles and your arms would be tied together and you would be lying on your chest? Like a hog tie. You, the hog, hog tie. tie. Yes. Every time you would take a breath you were lifting the entire body weight because your chest was on on the gurney and and you had and then you suffocated and and this was um like outlawed as a way to restrain people like you know decades ago and so this is not exactly the same but it sounds like they strapped this person down pretty hard on their abdomen and uh maybe coupled with the fact that they were withdrawing or hallucinating or whatever, that it basically suffocated them. So I looked at some of the other criminal penalties that they could have charged these people with. So the other thing I thought would have been more likely would be involuntary manslaughter or reckless homicide. So in the state of Illinois, that's defined as a person who unintentionally kills an individual without lawful justification. Uh, if the acts cause the death are let's see are likely to cause death or great bodily harm this is kind of a mumbo jumbo if he okay let's see person who unintentionally kills an individual without lawful justification commits involuntary manslaughter if his acts whether lawful or unlawful which cause the death are such as are likely to cause death or great bodily harm to some individual and he performs them recklessly well, I mean, the fact pattern that you described fits those elements better. I'm surprised that they that the prosecutor went to went to murder one on this. So the again, the murder one was in performing acts which caused the, the death. He or she knows that such acts create a strong probability of death. And the other one is um, are likely to cause death or great bodily harm, and he performs them recklessly. Like there's there's almost no distinction. I know, but they have a choice, right? So, so you want to take your EMS personnel and you're choosing to charge them with first degree murder when you have an option prosecutor. I mean, yeah. come on. 
I assume they, yeah, it, it's a little bit weird. I mean, I assume they expect the jury will downgrade it, but it is weird they even went after it. Yeah. Well, I guess one of the uh, lessons for the emergency department folks is, uh, you know, nobody needs to be on their abdomen uh, and being restrained. Uh, that's just, uh, I think, dangerous business. Dangerous well, business. Yeah, one step further. I mean, we know chemical restraint is a whole lot better than physical restraint. I'm a big believer in how low below dark. Well, yes, and and from a distance, they have great accuracy. <laughs> um, Kevin, let's do uh, one more before um, uh, and for this se session. I, we got a bunch of emails we can uh, address okay. next time. I think most of the emails are get addressed personally, if that's to me or or to. Uh, Rachel, and so it's not like they've been sitting, but we'd like to discuss them with other folks to see what they think. Uh, so tell us about this $100 million case. Yeah, another another excess limits judgment, and bigger than the last. So this is not a good trend, Rick and Rachel, not good at all. So this person <laughs> um, who was from Nepal playing soccer um, in Minnesota, I had a pretty significant injury to the leg. Or on-call orthopedist came in, operated on him that night, but while still in the hospital, documented, hey, I'm really having severe pain. Here we go again. This, this is akin to the meningitis discussion we had. I'm having really bad pain, severe pain. My leg is numb. I have a burning sensation in my muscles. Okay, but the answer is not discharge home. It's probably um, get the, you know, especially if you're under the care of an orthopedist, probably compartment pressures make sense, um, but discharged and then six days later returned. And I don't know what happened in the intervening time, but they returned complaining of persistence of your pain. Of course, didn't get better. They had a compartment syndrome and, um, and had 20 additional operations. So I, I don't know at the details and where that all ended up, if they ultimately ended up with an amputation or not. So many of these do, but there's, there's cosmesis and reconstruction that has to happen and sometimes revascularization that has to occur as well. But 20 additional operations that resulted in, you know, the jury saying, you know, this is worth a lot. This is worth not even really just a hundred million, but it's 111 million. I've got a little extra detail, you know, to add to this one as well. So, you know, the, the person came in in 2017, 2019, they filed their claim. And um, of course it was against the orthopedic group. And, um, and uh, be, because this, this was an employee, the orthopedist, it was against the group. And, um, and they really basically said that the patient was not appropriately evaluated by the physician and the PA um, postoperatively with those symptoms, failed to diagnose and his treatise compartment syndrome and improperly discharged from the hospital. Well, retrospectively, it's hard to argue with that. What's really fascinating is they came up with $100 million after a week-long trial um, for future pain, disability, disfigurement, embarrassment, and emotional distress and also gave him $10 million for past suffering and an additional $1 million for past and future medical bills. So again, here we are again with the, the economic damages being the smaller portion, the non-economic being really exaggerated. And 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 I and Rachel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And of course, Rick, too. What I have seen when someone actually goes to trial with a, a complex repair of an extremity like that, in an you know, they have an external fixator on or whatever else, and there is significant disfigurement. Believe me, that 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 extremity is exposed to the jury. 
And there was a lot of sympathy. And I tell you what, I, I wonder if that's what happened here again, that you shouldn't have done this. It's so horrible. And we're going to teach you a lesson. Again, I know there's a trend for excess limits judgments out there. But I will tell you, this is still these two cases and this one, I think, in particular, is really still an aberrancy. And I think they're trying to send a message. So fascinating information, one hundred and eleven million dollars. And, um, you know, over um, over one hundred and ten of it was non-economic. What are the lessons that we could take home uh, for emergency clinicians in terms of this diagnosis? Yeah, well, for me, this is. This reminds me of really making sure that when something doesn't fit the picture, don't smash the square peg into the round hole. <laughs> oh, I think it's an ankle sprain. Well, does an ankle sprain um, complain of severe pain? Does that pain wake you up when you sleep? Is there burning? Is there numbness? You know, any extremity injury that you have, you should be thinking, how is this not compartment syndrome now? And what do I have to tell them to look for to make sure it's not compartment syndrome tomorrow? Um, and if you can't answer that, you got to go to the next step. You're either going to get the the um, the orthopedic consult, or you're going to find a way to do compartment pressures yourself. But you got to know. And so, again, just like what Rachel eloquently said before about meningitis, you're pushed through. This seems easy. Ankle sprain feels right. Muscle strain feels right. Severe pain like this, particularly when you're set up for compartment syndrome after a severe injury, you got to take the time and, and evaluate them appropriately. So, yeah, I would say another one of those. Pain out of proportion kind of things. We don't know what bone was broken here, but obviously, if it was a tibia, it's, I think that's number one for uh, compartment syndromes. Um, Excellent point. You're right, Rick. I think this Let's, was potentially. A, I think this was potentially a good catch by the person who saw him six days later. I had an interesting case that was similar in that the patient had an injury, and then he presented in that same time frame, maybe six days or so. And the initial response I got from the orthopedist was. It can't be compartment syndrome because it's too late. It's like it's almost a week out from the injury, and it can't it's be true. meningitis. It can't be meningitis. That's a, that's a that's a that's not a good thing well, to say. You know, way. I'm always amazed that the people who are on the telephone when you're at the bedside can tell you what you're seeing isn't what you think you see. Yeah, but you know, it's true. It's so you know, it's not classic, and so I think you know this is a good reminder that uh, you know a lot of these dangerous cases we're seeing with atypical presentations and we still have to advocate for our patients, especially when the consultants are pushing back. And this case would have been easy to miss, right? Patient had yeah. surgery. And then six days later, you know, their, their pain starts six days ago and we're seeing them almost a week later. And the orthopedist already saw them six days ago and said, it's not compartment syndrome. And now we're going to fight that fight a week later. Yeah. They're still having those symptoms. Yeah. We really need you to see them. No, maybe they haven't changed. Who knows? But you know, we, we still have to be that advocate, even in atypical presentations. And I think this was one of them. Yeah. Well stated. Okay, guys, thanks so much for uh, uh, doing these uh, uh, cases this month. And we look forward to uh, more of them next month. I got to I, I want to give you a little uh, coming attractions. I just saw this thing out of the, uh, the January 5th issue of the uh, New York times. And it's about a federal move and regulation that are going to be proposing to bar non-compete agreements in labor contracts. And that would affect 
tons and tons of you out there who are doing clinical practice in the emergency department and who view this non-compete agreement kind of thing as um, unfair. In fact, some states don't allow non-competes. I think California is, is one of them. But in any case, thank you very much, uh, Rachel. Uh, I hope you're feeling better. You did really well. And uh, uh, Kevin, you're terrific. And I, I'm just really thrilled that you're with us and, and uh, you are taking the time because you've got a You've got a busy job, and and you know your your after hours and those kinds of things, and and you even spent time looking it up, looking the case up independently, which you get extra credit for, you know. Well, and that's one of Rachel's things. She looks, she's she's missed Doctor Data, you know, comes <laughs> up with all of the facts and figures here on these on these cases. You're still well, Rick, in my moves. You. There you go, the moves. So Rick and Rachel, thank you for adding me to the team. And it was really fun. Um, and I'm really, really excited to, to work with you on this. And I want to extend my, my congratulations to our friend Greg and wish him the best in his risk management monthly retirement. Thank yeah, you, happy Greg. Happy retirement, Greg. Thank you, Rachel. Bye-bye. <laughs>